Welcome back to Ghostly Talk. This is Scott L. This is Amber. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. This isn't going to be on exactly Valentine's Day, but we we want to... I love you. I love you, too. I love you. I love you. Uh, <laughs> this, this show is not exactly airing close to Valentine's Day. It's about a week or so before. Yeah. But we wanted to get this in because our, our dear friend, Mr. Mark Onspa... Who we've dubbed now the official storyteller of Ghostly he Talk. He is our official Ghostly Talk storyteller, yes. Uh, he was here, if you remember, back in, during Christmas. So that yeah. wasn't too long ago. No. And we had a conversation with him after the show because we had such a good time with him. And he mentioned something. He's like, well, you know, I, I got a book on, on, you know, kind of the weird and dark history of Valentine's Day and well, dark just, stories. In, yeah, and dark stories. inspired Yeah, I should say stories. the stories, yeah. Uh, but, um, and we said, well, that's great. Let's, let's yep. have you back on. Yep. Let's, let's chat with you. Yep. So, um, Yes, yeah, so we had him back on tonight. It was super cool. My voice yeah. is so we talked, talk. My voice we is talked gone. about the dark history of Valentine's Day because it's not what everyone thinks it is. Unless you are a history buff, um, you might be surprised at what inspired Valentine's Day. And like any holiday, it's, of course, taken a commercial turn yeah. um, and is now a multi-billion dollar industry. Yes, it is. Um, but... I Candies, think the only thing flowers, I like cards. The, I like the occasional Russell Stover's heart box, and that's about as cheap of a candy I will eat and enjoy. I don't know what's wrong. Really? Yeah, really, Scott. Okay, let, let, let me help you I, with this. Life let, let is me, too well, short you, you to eat crappy chocolate. That. I did say that. I have two things that I do not like: crappy desserts. <laughs> I don't like bad cookies, and I don't like bad coffee. Russell's covers is the make me cheapest snotty? candy that I'll. Ever. No, you know what? The cheapest co- candy, the worst. Anyone out there? Palmer chocolate. Palmer. 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 It's just like chocolate plastic. It, it, you would get it sometimes at Halloween. Palmer chocolate. And it would be the little foil-wrapped piece of crap chocolate, and, and the foil some on every single piece was, like, ripped in some ch- part of it. So it's exposed. Exposing the chocolate. And you get the coronavirus. For probably one year. For the coronavirus to get into. Yeah, now that would happen. But, yeah. no, I just, no, I that is, is an inexpensive chocolate. Russell Stouffer's. Yes. Ooh. Oh my God. Okay, if I if I get a box, I'm not sharing it with you now. I don't want it. Good. I can't. Have I won't it. share my expensive chocolate. I'm with you getting now. healthy. I don't. Chocolate is healthy. It has antioxidants. Yeah. Yeah. That dark chocolate is yeah. healthy. Like the 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 dark chocolate they yeah. say, not the yeah. milk chocolate stuff that tastes really good. You don't know that's good for the mind. It's good for the mind. How? Yeah. Because it makes you feel good. No, I don't. Yeah, it, it well, does. So it's a drug then, basically, a crackhead. You're like, ooh, Junkie. this feels good. I can conquer the uh, world. This feels good. I just gained like 40 pounds of this one piece of chocolate. No. <laughs> you exaggerate. So, lies. Uh, lies. So, yeah. Um, so we talked about Valentine's Day. Yeah. And, and love. And, and love. Mark, Mark and love. shared two, two stories. Yeah. we. Yeah. One is from his book, Fucking Bloody awesome. Valentine's. And then the other is an actual premiere. Dude, 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 dude. He, so good. He wrote for Ghostly Talk for so the show tonight. Yeah, we, uh, that blew my mind. I was like, you actually spent the time to do this? And it was like, I could I, I could imagine it as like a little uh, little movie so or something. Good. Like it was really, really good. Well, let's not, yeah, I don't want to talk about I'm it not gonna, No, we won't spoil it. We don't want to spoil it. We're it's not going to spoil good. it. I mean, we're both really excited It's called, about it. what was it called? I wrote it down. Shades of. Shades of Love. Shades of Love. Shades of but, Love. But no, it's actually a serious story. It's and, a uh, really, really great story. It's really good. So we look forward to you guys. Hearing these wonderful stories that Mark brought to us tonight, and we had some really cool talking about the dark and bloody 
bloody. Yeah. And bloody history. Make sure to check out Mark, uh, all of his other books. You can get them on Amazon. Yeah. Available. Some of them are in print. Some of yeah. them are, uh, you Let's can get them immediate, link. We'll put immediately some links in the post. There'll be links in the post, but you can always just Google. And um, so make sure to check out his stuff because yeah. he's got a lot out there. It's really good, especially if you like sci fi and short stories. So, yeah, and there's a lot we. You mentioned this when we were done talking to him. There's so much more we want to talk to him about. So yeah, he's, he's got an, he's got every time like our first bio which we read before. He's done um, all this cool stuff, and we want. I mean, he's just a really really well, he, interesting he person. He studied psychology at UCLA, exotic yeah. animals at Moore Park College's EATM program. Yeah, yeah. Improv comedy with the Groundlings and special effects makeup with yeah. Thomas Berman, Rick Baker, and Rob Botton. Yeah. Um, and he's also written for television. So it's like I keep forgetting to ask about like that. A chunk there of learning <laughs> like what okay that's a lot of different stuff especially exotic animals i'm kind of curious about that one well mark will be coming anyway. back um yes. and it was a great time having him here again so please enjoy our second discussion with mark on spa Day used to be like a really big deal, like when we were in elementary school. When I was a little kid. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. It was, it was, it was this big day. It was, it was like a pretty important holiday, like when you were very young. I, I guess because I mean, yeah, and they, the, yeah. Sometimes you made little mailboxes yep. to put on your desk. Yeah, well, yeah. To get Valentines. That's what I remembered was we'd have like we'd all make Valentines for yeah, each other. Yeah, and, and the mailboxes specifically, I had to make the most intense, awesome mailbox. My mailbox had to be up better than the other kids. And then I had to write <laughs> everyone's names like perfectly on the Valentines. And then sometimes I would pick and choose because you know how you would get the packs of multiple, there'd be multiple different Valentine's Day in the packs. Like the kids I didn't yeah. really like would get the boring card. The kids I really liked would get like the funnier one. Like it's kind of, it's evil. It's, it's, <laughs> it's evil. It's it wasn't nice. <laughs> well, it, I mean, it was kind of. But Valentine's Day isn't nice, as we're going to learn about. Well, yeah, but the thing was, growing up, it was it was supposed to be this lovey dovey thing, and I, I know I, it's it's one of those things. Like looking back now, just thinking about how how it was growing up in the eighties when I was when I was a little kid. I don't think that would ever fly now. You couldn't do something like that. Like have Valentine's Day or Valentine's oh, parties where you I make Valentine's because th- what I remember I think and they still do it what I remember about it was like there was the popular kids like even there was even popular kids in elementary school like yeah, the, ones yeah, that yeah. Were the, the, the handsome the cute ones whatever yeah. and I wasn't one of them uh, <laughs> and like yeah of course they got a lot more Valentine's than I did right now I don't really care personally because I was raised by good parents and they taught me that that stuff doesn't really matter that much but I'm, I wonder if nowadays with the sensitive as people could be um, if that stuff even happens anymore, or does everybody just get? Is everybody just supposed to get their own the, a certain quota of valentines? And that is that. Well, I, don't I would give everyone a valentine. I wouldn't miss anyone. I would just like I said, if I had like the Disney set of cards and I didn't like Darkwing Duck, then that kid that I didn't care for would get the Darkwing Duck card. <laughs> 
it's like that was that was as about as judgmental as I got. But yeah. everyone got a card. I, I guess. I mean, I'm just wondering if that that still happens. I don't today. know. I don't know. I have mine. My, uh, go ahead. Mark. I'm I'm a bit older, and the cards that we got were generic and had like really terrible puns. <laughs> I think they even used one on The Simpsons where Lisa gave. Um, Ralph a Valentine and said choo choo choose me and it has a train on it. <laughs> I remember that episode. <laughs> you know, and they uh they didn't have any uh, product placement back then. You know, like I said, it was just all generic bad puns. Yeah. You know, I love you, you little stinker with a skunk on it or something. That <laughs> one you could give the kid you didn't like. Yeah, yeah. You know? Exactly. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm saying you smell, but I'm saying it in a nice way. <laughs> so yeah, I mean Valentine's Day centers around that idea. Uh, I, you know, and I mean, can I ask you guys a question before we get into this stuff? I mean, I yeah. we always hear the term Hallmark holiday. Yeah, was it really invented? Yeah, well, kind of. You might, you know, okay, do you want to know the year the first Hallmark Valentine's Day came out? Yeah, go ahead. Nineteen thirteen. And Hallmark's been yeah, around. And it was right. Hallmark. I found that too. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, I really, mean, but you know, ahead. it it started. Um, the Brits are the ones that really embrace Valentine's Day, and it was uh, because Chaucer and Shakespeare, you know, wrote about Valentine's Day. And then uh, there was actually in 1797 a, a British publisher issued the Young Man's Valentine Writer, Ooh. which was scores of suggested sentimental verses <laughs> if you didn't know how to compose your own. <laughs> I gotta look that up. Yeah. <laughs> So this is and then, a home. And then postage came down, so everybody was able to send Valentines. And since they were anonymous, uh, there was a lot of racy verse in this, Ooh. you know, otherwise prudish Victorian times. And, um, you know, but yeah, she's right. Uh, Hallmark, you know, really revolutionized things in Kansas City yeah. by mass producing them. And Cadbury created the first uh, heart-shaped Valentines uh, chocolate box Cadbury. back in eighteen. 18- 68 oh, wow. so you know they've been moving towards just uh making mass uh, mass amounts of chocolates and cards and stuff yeah so it really is so it really was a holiday that was i mean I, at least in part it was a holiday that was kind of manufactured to boost sales let's say that's what right I, that's and what it's I, never been a government holiday i mean you don't get a day off for valentine's no. day so yeah it's just, but it's a billion, like multi, like multi-billion-dollar industry, just like any other holiday. Yeah, oh, yeah, and you can find it all over the world, even places where they frown on it, like Muslims frown on Valentine's Day because of public displays of affection, and it encourages, you know, too much uh, Western values, and uh, you know, there are other people that look at it as um, kind of infringing on their beliefs or their religions, but other countries have really embraced it. Oh, okay. But if you if you hate Valentine's Day, go to Brazil because they don't celebrate it. Okay, move there. If, if you despise <laughs> Valentine's Day. Yeah, because Day. Uh, it's too close to Carnival. Oh. So they have something in June that's called Boyfriend's Girlfriend's Day, and that's sort of their Valentine's Day. Okay. But U.S. News and World Report actually said if you're a single and you hate Valentine's Day, go to Carnival. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there you go. Lovey-dovey this and that. We know about Valentine's Day. Mark Onspa, that's who you hear on the phone here, who was here not too long ago uh, during Christmas, right. uh, was nice enough to come back here and join us again to talk about 
maybe the darker side of this, the bloodier side, let's say, of Valentine's Day, because apparently there is a lot of blood. This is what I'm being told yeah. by people. <laughs> uh, so this isn't all just, you know, heart-shaped chocolate boxes and flowers and Valentine's cards. It isn't this cutesy holiday. There's some darkness here also, from what I understand. Am I correct on that, Ambrose and Mark? Yeah, and I'm sure Mark's going to tell yeah. us about it. Well, let's just dive in, Mark. I mean, so the bloody history of Valentine's Day. Let's just start with that. I mean, how far, all right. how far does this go back, I guess? Well, we go all the way back to the ancient Romans, like in the first century, and they had a festival called Lupercalia, which is based on Pan, and it actually has roots even uh, older than that, I think, in ancient Greece. Um, So it was kind of crazy. Men would go uh, to a sacred cave in the mountains, (laughs) and the priest would sacrifice a goat for fertility and a dog for purification. Oh. And that you think, you think well, that's, that's plenty right there. But then the men would cut the hides up into strips and dip them in the sacred blood, and then they would go out in the streets naked and slap women with these bloody hides. And the, woman, the women welcomed it because they thought it would make them more fertile. Yeah, I think that would work. it's a long way from a card or a chocolate (laughs) box you know being whipped with a bloody hide and then they would have a lottery where the men would draw women's names from a jar and they would pair up for the duration of the festival or longer if the match was good so so they were just like speed dating that's like that that, literally speed dating um yeah speed dating you know slap someone with a bloody hide and then draw their name, and it's like, you know, here's your match. (laughs) And it was so romantic. But they had, it sounds like they had the option, though, like they were were paired up because of a lottery, but it sounds like they had their opportunity to spend time together, and if it wasn't sparking, they had the option to not be together. It wasn't like they, it was, okay. Yeah, no, it wasn't like, um, you know, a mandate. It was just like, you know, sort of like almost partner swapping, but, you know, these were, I, I would think, single men and single women. Yeah, yeah. Well, in the second century, you had three different uh, saints named Valentine. All of them were martyred. And the most famous one was St. Valentine of Rome, who um, was, uh, he performed weddings for soldiers because um, Claudius, supposedly, there's a lot of, dispute on this this um, uh, chronology and this history and whether it's legend or not. Uh, some of this I actually found on an NPR site, which I think is kind of, uh, you know, vetting it. But, you know, I'm sure people will argue with this. But Claudius didn't want his men to marry because he felt that married men would not make good soldiers. So St. Valentine would perform weddings, and he was said to have cut hearts from parchment giving them to soldiers and persecuted Christians um, to remind them of God's love and their vows. Okay. And then he also supposedly wore a purple amethyst ring with Cupid uh, incised in it, which was a symbol of love and was legal in the Roman Empire. And um, people would see the ring, and then they'd ask him to perform a marriage. Now, um, Claudius of course, was not happy about Valentine's, so he brought him in, 
and actually tried to convert him to paganism, and Valentine tried to uh, convert him to Christianity. And so he was set to be executed because he was, you know, a Christian. And he actually healed the daughter of his jailer, who was blind, and gave her her sight back. And the day before he was executed, he sent her a note signing it, Your Valentine. So okay. some people think this is where, you the know, origins. the first Valentine was actually from a guy who was about to lose his head, quite literally. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I was going to say that. This yeah. is sound like an origin story here mm-hmm. for this thing. As far as... <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, his flower crown skull is still on display in a church in Rome. St. Valentine's. St. Valentine. The St. Valentine of Rome. All of, of Rome. them have uh, relics in various churches. One of them has a relic in uh, Ireland. But like I said, St. Valentine of Rome is actually the most famous saint. Yeah name valentine and then he you know if you want to see his skull with flowers on it you know go to rome now you said he wore a ring with uh, an amethyst ring with cupid inside of it yeah uh, cupid um engraved on it I Engra- engraved on it where do, i mean i'm wondering and where that amethyst came became from. the the um you know the gem of february oh, yeah. yeah that is right that is right i'm wondering where that piece came from like where cupid um, became a part of this puzzle, I guess. I don't know any other any, any, other, any other way to say it. Is where how Cupid became part of this and became. I mean, as far as Cupid's a god of of love from like the Roman and Greek era. Yeah, you know, he's the god of love, and yeah. he's reli- related to Aphrodite or Venus. Okay. So, under Roman rule, you know, it was fine to have an image of one of the gods. You know, you just couldn't have uh, anything pertaining to you know a Christianity. And so, you know, that's sort of how um, Valentine got around that. It's like, well, if this is love, but I'm talking about, you know, God's love and uh, not that God, my God. Okay. So, I mean, this did, so, well, as we said already, this this did come, I mean, that's St. Valentine of Rome. Now, you said there was other St. Valentines. Can we talk about those ones also? Um, there's sort of... Uh, more minor, it's just that they all have to be named Valentine. Oh, okay, they just share the name. You know, um, there was a another one in Rome, and I've forgotten where the third one was. It was just, there was more than one, but this is the one that they sort of associate with the beginnings, and it's his feast that, um, uh, going back to Lupercalia, you know, over the centuries, it, it kind of... Um, became more theatrical. They were no longer sacrificing animals. It was mainly an excuse to get drunk, run naked through the streets, you know, and have a good time. And so it was, it was kind of a shadow of its earlier bloody beginnings. But the person still not happy about it was this pope, I'm not going to say this right, Gelasius I, okay. who outlawed Lupercalia in the 5th century, and he wanted to replace it with a feast day for St. Valentine. So Lupercalia became, you know, Valentine's Day, essentially, back in the 5th century. And, um, you know, he's another one of these killjoys that didn't like people running around naked having a good time. So he said, no more of that, and um, we're going to have a feast for a saint instead. Well, it's like so many and of those holidays. All, they were all, pardon? like, taken over by... Uh, religion, like a lot of the pagan holidays. When you look at like Easter yeah. and Christmas and a lot of the, 
yeah, Christian holidays are like, well, how can we get those pagans to convert? Well, let's just switch their <laughs> holiday over. Come on, guys. Well, let's you your keep clothes a tree on. in your living room, yeah. but, you know, you got to have a manger in there, too. Put your clothes on now. Okay, enough, enough of the <laughs> yeah, naked stuff. Exactly. Yeah, there's no guys, more nakedness. Yeah, you guys can still be horny, but do it with your clothes on and have some chocolate. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, Find I mean, closed doors and, and, and you know, be married. Yeah. <laughs> so, like I said, Chaucer wrote a, a verse about it. Um, in honor of Richard II's engagement, um, which said basically, I'm not going to read you the old English because there's no way I can handle that, <laughs> but basically translated to, for this was on St. Valentine's Day when every bird cometh there to choose his mate. And um, the poem links St. Valentine's Day with the time of year in which birds mate, signifying love. And then Valentine's Day is also mentioned by Ophelia and Hamlet, and so these things help to kind of re- romanticize the notion of Valentine's Day. And um, then people were making cards by hand. <laughs> Excuse me, choking on my own uh, spit here. <laughs> <laughs> Occupational hazard. <laughs> um, people made their own cards, and then, you know, various printers started thinking, hey, you know, people. Like-. And so they started making hand- uh, limited numbers of cards, which were called mechanical Valentines. And then uh, fancier ones were made with lace and ribbons and all this stuff. And um, postage was prohibitively expensive until they reduced the postal rates to a stamp called the penny black, which I'm sure if you've got one is worth quite a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, then it's just snowballed from there. And like you say, once it got to the new world and Hallmark came in, you know, it's like Amber Rose said, it's like a billion-dollar industry now. Yeah. Especially in the U.S. and, and in uh, Europe. And a lot of it's and I found like... A couple of, Go ahead, Mark. I was just going to say I found a couple of interesting uh, folk things. Um, in the 1800s, children in Norfolk in England would set out before dawn to sing rhymes in exchange for sweets, cakes, and pennies. And one verse was, good morrow, Valentine, God bless the baker, you'll be the giver, and I'll be the taker. (laughs) (laughs) And once the sun came up, their requests were turned down because they were said to be sunburnt. And then if you want to get really embarrassed, go to Derbyshire, because their girls would pray that their their boyfriend would call on Valentine's Day. I guess it could be their girlfriend now. And if he did not call, she was deemed dusty. Oh. And then she would be humiliated by her family or friends who had to clean her with a broom or straw. Oh, that's sad. Isn't that nice? (laughs) You're dusty. Your guy didn't call. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and then also in in Norfolk, they have a character named Jack uh, Valentine, who's also known as Old Father Valentine or Old Mother Valentine. Okay. And he he wears like a top hat and a you know a long coat, and he leaves gifts and disappears. But even though he does that, a lot of kids are afraid of him. And I think Why? you know well this is this is the area where they also gave us Jack the Ripper, Pumpkin mm-hmm. Jack, Jack Frost, and the Jackknife. So you know anybody named Jack, I think is suspect. Yeah, people are a little shell shocked on that name. There, it sounds like. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, just a bit. <laughs> no, I'm not here to kill you. <laughs> I'm yeah. here 
<laughs> here's a present. But, you know, I looked up some illustrations of the guy, and there's some where he's like, oh, he looks pleasant enough, and there's others where like, ugh. You know, oh, if God. I saw that guy in my window, I might faint. You know, so, so one thing I want to ask, like, just to over over this whole thing, one thing that you mentioned throughout this so far was this idea that, I mean, that maybe it is the time of year where, you know, it's late, it's like, you know, later midpoint way through February, you know, but that, see, that's only inclusive of the Michigan. Sometimes the weather can change. I, I know like when I was growing up, when I was very young or in the teens and stuff like that, like February, March, I remember that because the weather would start breaking a little bit here and it would start getting warmer. The sun would start coming out. And this is after several months of it being bitterly cold. The weather would break and you just was like, hey, love's in the air. <laughs> I don't know any other yeah. way to say it. You just were like, hey, people are coming back out again. I'm going to find myself a lady or something like that. There was, a, it was <laughs> is that a, what you would do? That, yeah, it's exactly yeah. right. I put my top every, hat on. Every and February. I put my top hat on and I put my, my bow tie on and I <laughs> go out. I'm find myself a lady. It's I go February. Out, I go hit the town, right? <laughs> okay. But there was, but there was a, you know internal thing. I mean, I, I can't really explain it. but Well, it's that spring renewal, which is like yeah. why there was festivals at this time that celebrate fertility because it's the planet waking up again. And then... Yeah. You know, right. food growing exactly. again and animals, you know, mating and birds. I mean, you get your eggs in the summer and the spring and all that stuff. So, yeah. I mean, I think it's just part of like that natural cycle that everything alive on the planet feels. Yeah, I, I, that's my whole right. point. Is it? Go ahead, Mark. And it, it's it's like you were saying that, you know, pagans or, you know, older peoples were celebrating, you know, the seasons and the harvest and then the renewal, you know, after a winter and then the Christian church came in and, and said, well, this won't do, you know, and so let's make it a feast of a saint, you know, whether it's St. Nicholas or St. Valentine or, or whoever, Saint Patrick, and try to absorb, you know, that belief system. I should have mentioned Lupercalia was February 13th through 15th. So um, I guess if you were a centurion or something, you got off work and uh, had a three-day holiday of... Uh, <laughs> Blood slapping, <laughs> drunken revelry, and, and being naked in the street, <laughs> you know, before you had to go back to work. Yeah. I mean... Didn't I see you at Lupercalia? Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> well, maybe you did. So, I mean, I mean, obviously, we're much more watered down now, and we've discussed these reasons oh, yeah. for that. Um, see, I just... It, well, it's, I guess it just, it's just kind but of... you a, know... Go ahead. You know, I, I will say that anything that has to do with love is always going to have a dark side. Yeah. Because not every love works out. Not every person is well-balanced. And so I think, you know, I remember, I think back in the 80s, there was a company that would actually send someone dead roses on your behalf. <laughs> yeah. If you were, like, angry or breaking up or something, you know, and it was like, well, that's kind of dark. <laughs> yeah. So... I think that's why there are movies, you know, about, uh, do you remember I, this going back a ways, but there was a movie called My Bloody Valentine. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. With a guy in a miner's cap yeah, or yeah. a miner's helmet with a pickaxe that was, you know. The last 10 years. Give you a chunk in the heart. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, I mean, and I think like Valentine's Day or that time of year is not much different I, I guess for some people, then like Christmas, for example, um, because, you know, what well, we just talked about Christmas with the last time you were here, Mark, and we talked about those ideas, too. Like um, it can be a dark time of year for people. It's a time of reflection. Um, 
And it's also a time where you may think about the people in your life that you've lost. And then if we go to Valentine's Day now, I think some people who may be more lonely at this time of year, maybe they don't have yeah. someone to be with, they fall into that same that same rut where they're like, well, my life, you know, I don't have someone that loves me and I can celebrate. So it can be a dark time of year for people like that, not this joyous, even now, even the cutesy fun stuff that we do now, the chocolates and the flowers and the, and the Valentine's cards and stuff like that. I think it, it can be a darker time of year for people. Uh, the few times nah. we've gone out for Valentine's Day, I swear we've seen the most depressing things. Like oh, oh, not the one. The one was like we come out of a restaurant Can and we, there's a couple fighting. I'm not gonna mimic him totally. Oh no, but, no, no, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll totally do it. And I'll totally do uh, it. I'll totally do it. It was the most <laughs> insane thing I've ever seen in my entire life, Mark. I gotta tell you, and for the audience too. So yeah, this is the one. That was like maybe because we've been together like 300 years now. Yeah, so so it was around 250 years <laughs> ago. <laughs> no, it was like it was about what 13 years yeah. ago, something like that. We were, I think, we went, we just went out to dinner. We didn't go anywhere super fancy. No, it was, it was Red like, Robin. We went to Red Robin. Okay, so and they're not a sponsor, by the way. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> not anymore. Not anymore. <laughs> Damn it! So we're walking out of the Red Robin, and well, we were walking in. We were walking oh, in. Oh yeah, we were. We were we walking were. in. Yep. And there was this couple walking out, and I mean, you just kind of think of the audio snippet we just got from this conversation. If you looked at them, they were wearing matching hockey jerseys, I think, or something like that. They were wearing matching shirts. Like, they were sports outfits, but they were matching. And, uh-huh. um, yeah, like, we just hear the, the audio snippet we got from them, if we were recording it, was the lady saying, but I thought we were a team. And then the guy says, bitch, I'll kill you. <laughs> I swear to God. Oh my God. <laughs> That's exactly what came out of his mouth. And like we walked by that and we're like, what the fuck? <laughs> we kind of looked at each other like whoa that's valentine's but that's like i think at valentine's got, day now man. that's what we do to each other i'll be like i thought we were a team but it's like horrible well, you know, it's so hard it's so hard to find a card that says bitch i'll kill yeah. you so, you gotta say it you can you only know. say it uh and then yeah. I think, that was the most bizarre and then was it last year we went to this like polish restaurant down the street and we had a waitress that was oh like, that was bizarre too yeah. yeah we were just like oh let's go to the polish nicest place. nice lady nice lady but i think she was like one of these people we were just talking about lonely yeah and she's working on no. valentine's day and she's seeing all these couples come in and she's just making way too much conversation with everybody and she's like oh it's so nice you guys are a couple well, that's yeah, so that's nice where things ha- got that's weird. That's so nice you guys have each other. That's what, yeah. And it's like, that's, oh, boy. Yeah, what's we're looking go- at each other like, oh, God, I, I feel wrong? bad about being with you right now. I what's feel terrible. What's gone wrong in your life? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean. But, yeah, it's, but, almost, it's almost like you wanted to have a fight to make her feel better, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but that does drive home that, that darkness. I mean, because, I mean, yeah, we're kind of goofing around about the last situation from last year a little bit but i mean we both said that we're like man there's something Some, happen- something yeah, happened you, you to felt her bad it was comical yeah, felt, yet it was yeah sad. i felt bad something happened to her so that is a darker side of this holiday i think uh that- i i think you know i think you're right because holidays bring certain expectations on on what is supposed to happen and how you're supposed to behave and if you're alone all it does is really point out that you're alone and it seems like everybody else is in love. Everybody else is holding hands, you know. And yeah. then it's like, you know, you're down there with your soup for one, you know, <laughs> watching TV in your underwear. And um, happy Valentine's Day. Well, I mean, and I think some people, 
I mean, there's been cartoons and comic books and all kinds of stuff made about this and after school specials and all these goofy things that, you know, it's Valentine's Day. I need to find a girlfriend today. Like some people come into it with that expectation, like it's Valentine's Day. Everybody's in the mood for love, so there's no way I'm not going to find a you know a girlfriend or a boyfriend, I should say, or whatever. I mean, whatever you're into. Uh, so, and then people come out the other end of that, and sometimes their expectations may not be fulfilled, and that's even darker. Then, like they they're like, well, I can't even find somebody on Valentine's Day. I mean, there's just so many little ways you can look at this holiday, and, and again, I think it's supposed to be for most people, it's a joyous time. But there is that dark side to it. Amber? So is this what inspired you to write your book, Dark Valentine? Like this whole dark side of what we're talking about right now? Yeah, essentially, you know, um, I had a couple ideas for stories about love that were kind of more horror related. And, um, you know, and then once I started writing them, I just had other ideas. And, um, you know, I have a couple to share with you today. Oh, no! I realized... (laughs) I realized that most of them are too long. There's a couple I really love, um, but they're just too long to read over the air. And uh, one was inspired. I have a friend who put out a couple of uh, anthologies, and one was about War of the Worlds. So I did a romance story set against the backdrop of the Martian invasion. Oh. And um, then I have another one where I I wrote about Dr. Moreau falling in love with one of his... um, creatures Ooh. you know and and that doesn't go well <laughs> so, but i didn't i didn't have a um short enough ghost story for you so i wrote one in the last couple of days oh come on this is we get an original wow we get, we, i this did is, yeah a premiere so, a premiere, premiere. Not, yeah of course all the stories are original but yeah that's the word i meant premiere we got a premiere that's right. <laughs> An exclusive for Ghostly. There Talk. we go. Well, thank you. Wow. Uh, yeah. Well, if you want to, if you, the floor is yours, Mark. If you'd like to uh, l- lay it on us, I guess. <laughs> okay. And uh, for any Italian listeners, I'm probably going to butcher an Italian phrase in this first story, <laughs> so I apologize. Um, this is one I wrote for you guys called "Shades of Love." It was well after midnight when Gemma Mancini prowled the museum. The lighting was low, an aid to the security guards who patrolled the galleries, but Gemma could have found her way in the dark. There were motion sensors, heat sensors, and pressure-sensitive plates near some of the more valuable displays. None of them were tripped by Gemma. There were cameras, of course, but Gemma was never caught on any of the feeds. The place was quiet, the stillness only disturbed by the rubber-soled footsteps of either Murray Solomon or Diane Snell, the two guards on duty. As for Gemma, she made no sound. Normally, she preferred to wander the museum while it was filled with patrons and staff, each person a fascinating glimpse into contemporary culture. But tonight, she was restless. It had been three days since Charlie had come to visit her, and she feared the worst. Gemma made her way to a gallery filled with abstract expressionist pieces. At first, the pieces had confused and even nauseated her. So much chaos, like staring into a maelstrom. She had actually been afraid some of the paintings would swallow her whole. Now she regarded number 15, painted by Jackson Pollock in 1950. She had come to appreciate the interplay of color and negative space, thanks largely to museum tours where she had eavesdropped on various curators, professors, 
and art aficionados. She sat on a bench and regarded the Pollock for a long time. She had learned that he had died in 1956 in a car wreck. Over the years, Gemma had hoped she might meet the artist, but he never entered the museum. In truth, the only artists she had seen were those who supervised the hanging of their work or students eager to sketch and learn from the paintings, drawings, and sculptures that made up her world. Gemma had died on April 14, 1510, two days before her 20th birthday. A victim of the sweating sickness, she had modeled for Victoria, Vittorio Coretti, a little-known but talented painter who had been influenced by the works of Raphael. Gemma had loved Coretti and hoped he might find her in death, but she never saw him again. She thought it might be because her remains were buried in the village of Fistola, while he had been buried in a family crypt in Florence. Gemma had been bound to the confines of the churchyard for almost 20 years when a most remarkable thing occurred. Coretti had loved Gemma's Titian-colored red hair and had used some of the strands to make brushes. Just before her death, he had finished a portrait of Gemma he called his masterwork. The painting was called Regazza con una ciotola di fici, or Girl with a Bowl of Figs. In the painting, she is dressed in robes of silk, the blue and gold of the sumptuous fabric, offsetting the beauty of her flawless pale skin, her golden-colored eyes, and her fiery tresses. She sits in a courtyard on a stone bench, a fig tree in the background. At her side is a bowl of figs, and she holds one. A bite has been taken out of the fig, and she has a slight smile as she regards the viewer with her velvety prize. The painting had gone to the home of Coretti's patron, Salvatore Medici of Florence. After Medici's death, the painting was bequeathed to a cousin in France. When the painting moved, Gemma felt compelled to follow it. Over the century, the painting moved many times, each time pulling Gemma with it. She had finally realized that the painting must contain some strands of her hair. This, coupled with her love for Coretti and his work, had allowed her to escape the dreary graveyard of Fasole and travel the world. Eventually, the painting made its way to the Los Angeles County Museum of Art in 1965, and that became Gemma's new home. Gemma liked living in the museum, if a ghost can be described as living anywhere. She had learned English in her travels, as well as French, Spanish, Portuguese, Arabic, Russian, and Japanese, and the constant influx of visitors to the museum allowed her to keep current with fashion, slang, and current events. Though surrounded by people most every day, she was lonely. People could neither see nor hear her. Oh, some registered her presence on an almost subliminal level, but no one tried to talk to her. No one acknowledged her presence. Then, on a Saturday in 1972, Charlie Ames came to the museum. He wandered aimlessly, looking but not really seeing. Charlie was 19 and a sophomore at UCLA. He had come to the museum to work on an assignment for an art history class, a class that he, as a business major, was beginning to think was a waste of his time. Then he saw Coretti's painting and stopped. He stared at her image. Gemma was nearby and watched him. He was handsome enough, tall and lean with jet black hair that was a bit unruly. She loved the blue of his eyes like that of a spring day in Florence, but mostly she liked the way her painting held him transfixed. 
Charlie sat down on a nearby bench and looked at the painting. He stayed for over an hour. Eventually, he went to the gift shop, hoping they might have a print of the painting or at least a postcard. Sadly, none was available. Charlie returned each weekend and then began coming to the museum during the week after his classes. Sometime he would be accompanied by friends and he would extol the virtues of her painting. His friends agreed it was beautiful, that the girl portrayed was beautiful, but it was clear they did not share his passion. Gemma would follow Charlie and his friends as they toured the museum or sat with cups of coffee in the cafe. Here they would discuss their plans and dreams, their anxiety about tests or girls that they desired. She learned that Charlie seemed particularly unlucky in love and never seemed to find that someone he yearned for. But there was more to him than that. He was kind and empathetic when one of his friends was worried or sorrowful. He was intelligent and had a wonderful sense of humor and often made his friends laugh. And more than once, she had seen Charlie give up his seat to an elderly person or help someone who was having trouble with a door or making it to a convenient bench. But for all his friends and good humor, Gemma often saw sadness and loneliness in his eyes. She would often sit next to him on the bench. Once he came to the museum with a book on Coretti, and she felt her face grow warm when he read about her life and her affair with Coretti. She knew she was in a very different age than the Renaissance, but still feared he might think less of her because of the relationship with the painter. As if he had read her mind, she heard him whisper, I'm in love with you, you know. Gemma was shocked, certain he was talking directly to her, but soon realized he was making a confession to the painting. After that day, she sat closer to him and sometimes placed her hand over his. She saw that he would get a wistful little smile when she touched him, and she realized she too was falling in love with the beautiful young man with the sad eyes. After that, she would talk to him as he sat, telling him of her life. No one could hear her, of course, but she fantasized that Charlie could, and then one day he would take her away from the museum, and they would have a life together. The years passed, and Charlie grew older, while Gemma did not. Such a concept was not foreign to her. As a ghost who had existed for over 500 years, she had seen many men and women grow old and die, some she had cared for, but never as much as she did for Charlie. As he grew older, Charlie's visits to the museum grew less frequent. Sometimes he would come with a woman. Gemma tried not to be jealous and knew that as a ghost, she could offer him little in the way of companionship or physical pleasure. Gemma told herself pining for him was futile and tried to forget him, but he was deep in her heart, enmeshed in her soul. She would cry when the museum was empty, her spectral tears falling like motes of moonlight that faded to nothingness. Despite her pain, she was always happy to see him, and she knew some girlish part of her still hoped she was in some fairy tale that might come true. There were times when her painting was rotated out of exhibition. Charlie would still come and sit on their bench, but he did not whisper to her on those occasions, even though she sat with him, trying to communicate her love and yearning for him. When Coretti's masterpiece was once again on display, she was always pleased at the jubilation in Charlie. His eyes would become bright, his step lighter, and he smiled like a child. On one of these occasions, he waited until he was alone in the room. Then he whispered that he had something important to tell her. Gemma, sure that he was going to profess his undying love for her, leaned in close, catching his scent, his excitement. I'm getting married, he told her, and her heart broke. Oh, 
kids. Really, she should have seen it coming. Then it got worse. I've taken a job in New York, he told the painting. He went on with the particulars of his new career, but she didn't hear any of it. She retreated into one of the rooms where rest restorations were performed. Usually the smells of fresh paint and other chemicals were a balm to her, but not today. It was 20 years before she saw Charlie again. Time might have moved more rapidly for her than the living. She was over 500 years old, after all. But days without Charlie and the sameness of her surroundings slowed the years to an agonizing crawl. When he returned, his face had new lines and his hair was going gray. And he wasn't alone. With him was a young woman of 18. Charlie showed her the painting and then told her how it had captured his heart. The young woman listened attentively and squeezed his arm. Charlie gestured to the painting. This is my daughter. We named her Gemma, after you. Gemma was both flattered and filled with sorrow, for his wife had given him a child, something she herself could never have done. The years passed. Charlie and his family moved back to Los Angeles, and Gemma watched as he grew old. His hair went completely gray and began to thin, and the lines in his face multiplied and grew more pronounced. One day, he tearfully told the painting that his wife had passed away, and her heart ached for him. After his children moved away, Charlie came to the museum every day. He had become a wealthy patron and saw to it that Girl with a Bowl of Figs was always on exhibit. He still got that wistful little smile whenever she would touch him or talk to him, but he always directed his whispered remarks to the painting, not to the young woman beside him. Charlie had grown quite old the last time Gemma saw him. He was stooped and needed the aid of a cane to get around, and when he talked, his breathing was labored. It was clear his health was fading. Charlie walked up slowly to the painting and smiled ruefully. Getting old, Gemma, he wheezed. Still, not bad for a man in his 90s, wouldn't you say? Some young men walked by and laughed, the old man talking to a painting. Charlie either didn't hear them or chose to ignore them. Gemma wished she could frighten them or at least make them feel a chill like the ghosts in stories. She had to be content with the knowledge that one day they would be by someone many years their junior. Gemma went to Charlie and put her arms around him, laying her head on his shoulder. Charlie sighed with contentment. Sometimes, he said, I swear I can smell your perfume. Something like gardenias. Silly old man. Gemma felt her eyes fill with tears. She knew the time was coming when she would be alone again and wished there was some way, any way, to free herself. But, of course, there was nowhere else to go but a cemetery in a tiny Italian village far away. Sighing, Gemma left the work of Jackson Pollock and wandered the exhibits. She passed some large windows and paused to look out at Robert Irwin's primordial palm garden. Though she had seen the collection of palms, tree ferns, and cycads many times, they still held an otherworldly aspect for her. How long since she had listened to the wind through a tree or heard a bird sing? How long since she had felt the rain on her face soaking her hair and her clothes, its scent clean and new? She longed to go outside but was afraid that being that far from her remains might cause her to dissipate like bits of ash or melting snow. Those pitiful bits of hair may have freed her from a world of tombstones and crypts, but now they cruelly kept her prisoner in the museum. The doors to the museum were now open and visitors bustled in. Usually Gemma liked the liveliness of the guests, 
but today such vitality and enthusiasm only underscored her feeling of dread. She retreated to a far corner of an Egyptian display, hiding behind a large sarcophagus, not because she was afraid of being seen, but because she did not want to see anyone. After 30 minutes, she began to feel very peculiar. It was similar to the feeling she had when her painting was being moved, and she felt compelled to accompany it. She wondered if the painting was being rotated out of exhibition again. Perhaps someone had purchased it. Was that possible? Curious, she returned to the wing where her painting hung. A young man sat on the bench. He was tall with an unruly mop of jet black hair. His clothes had not been in fashion for 70 years. He looked up at her and smiled. Hello, said Charlie. She stared at him, then ran to him. They embraced and she could feel him, truly feel him. You're more beautiful than my dreams, he told her. Gemma was flooded with emotions, happiness, confusion, perhaps even a little fear. Was this really happening? Was Charlie really young again and in her arms? Charlie smiled and touched her face tenderly and her doubts melted away. They could make a home here and Charlie motioned toward the exit. Are you ready to go? There's so much of the world I want to show you. Gemma looked down, filled with sadness. I can't leave, Charlie. I must remain here or return to the church in Pasoli where I was buried. But you're here thousands of miles from Italy. Only because Coretti used some of my hair in his brushes, such remains allowed me to leave my bones behind, but I am bound to them. Charlie laughed, but it was without cruelty. Gemma, I was cremated and buried in the family plot in Georgia. She looked at him, not understanding. You are not bound to your remains, Gemma, just as I am not. Oh, I felt a compulsion to remain there, but something stronger allowed me to leave. My love for you. Gemma remembered that long ago she too had once thought it must be your love for Coretti that bound her to the painting, not the grave. A tiny spark of hope flickered in her heart. It seemed love is far more powerful than a bond than one's earthly remains. Charlie kissed her, and she felt a passion, a yearning she had not felt in over 500 years. Gemma smiled at him, and Charlie smiled back. They kissed again, unmindful of a tour group that passed through them. Together they walked to the exit, two happy young people in love, unnoticed by throngs of visitors. They passed through the glass doors and into the shining and beckoning world beyond. Oh, I love that. That was great. That's exactly Thank what I you. wanted to have happen. I was like, I know I was oh, rooting for oh, Gemma. I'm yeah. like, come on, I was like, Gemma. I, I hope when Charlie dies, he's gonna die soon. He's getting old. Like he's gonna, they're gonna find each other. <clears throat> I never now, thought I would ever get to a point in my life where I would really be excited about hearing something like that. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I just, I, I guess it's maybe my age, Mark. But I love hearing yeah. stories like that now. It's heartwarming. I like. That. I'm glad. Yeah, I like. It's it, it's nice. It just Ma- it feels good. Mark, was that inspired? Is that a real painting? No, I made that up. Okay, okay. Because <laughs> I googled it because I was like, while you were reading, I'm like, oh, I gotta find out if that's a real painting. I want to see that. So I didn't know if you like this was inspired by like real things out there. But is, is Coretti a real artist or that was made up? No, I made him up. Okay, too. <laughs> okay. Um, I came up with a title for the painting, and then my wife, uh, Toby was actually an art critic and a teacher of art history. And I said, does this sound like an actual title of a it, Renaissance painting? It does. She said, yes. And then I wrote to uh, her uh, stepsister who lives in Italy and says, because I Google translated it, and I thought, well, I can't trust Google. So yeah. she translated it for me into Italian. 
Okay. You said they were pretty close. Something. So, yeah. like I said, I hope I didn't butcher it too badly because that is not a language I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know what? Hang on. I want to. I want to stop. Because something we had a, something goofy happened with the phone line when you were reading. It wasn't bad. It sounded like an EVP. It sounded weird. It sounded it, like it, a ghost popped through. Oh, yeah. You know what? Maybe we'll so just. What do you want to do? You know, let's just let it roll then. Yeah, that's yeah, fine. Okay, fine. So I was gonna stop and edit, but no, we'll just let it go from. It here, literally right? sounded like an EVP. Well, it and just then happened we, again, and we just heard like another female voice pop in right now. Yeah, I don't know. Well, yeah, that's really. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I don't want to go. No, off I'm the not deep saying end, it's but... that, but that's what I'm hearing. A well, female yeah, voice we popping twice. When you were reading, it's that's, Gemma. It's Gemma. <laughs> when you were reading, when you were reading the story, uh, yeah, a female voice kind of popped in. We heard yeah, it. Right at like a crucial part of the story, too. Yeah. So I mean, wow, I, I, I didn't hear that at all on my end. We'll have to go back and listen to that and see if we hear any like a word. Yeah, I'd like to go back. And, I'd like to go back and listen to that because that was weird. Scott and I both like looked at each other, like, "What? Oh my god, that was like a female All right, well, voice." Yeah, that's fine. Then I'm just going to let it roll. I was going to stop it and edit, but I'll, we'll just we'll just roll yeah, through it. That's no, fine. No, um, beautiful story though. No, it's awesome. Yeah, Thank it's you. Really, really a beautiful story. Um, and yeah, you know, I mean, that to me, that, that's the sign of a good story, is because I'm sitting there going, "Okay, like I, like Amber said." I'm I'm rooting for this person now. She she's been alone for how many years now? Like you know, five hundred years is sucky. You know, nobody over five hundred. Yeah, nobody deserves to live like that. Uh, whether whether they're alive no. or dead, so to say, and just to see her meet up with her with her dude. Well, and that's like the classic the classic plight of a lot of ghost stories out there. The the theme like always searching for their lost love who is. You know, went down on a ship at sea, and so you see this ghost uh, lady in white walking the shores of Lake Huron. Well, you know, yeah, always I mean, looking for him, but never finding him. The basis of uh, you know. Did you go ahead, Mark? I was just going to say, did you guys see um, somewhere in time with Christopher Reeve and Jane Seymour? Okay, I should. Okay, we should have watched that movie. I can tell you, Scott hasn't seen it. I no, should have I watched haven't. it because it's like. It's your favorite. No, you know, no, it's like the unofficial movie of Michigan because it yeah. was filmed in Michigan on Mackinac Island. And really? so Mackinac Island freaks out all the time over that um that this you know, here's the spot where Jane Seymour and Christopher Reeves like did this scene and here's this scene. And, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I, I should watch that one of these days. It's it's based on a book by Richard Matheson, mm. who's okay. a, a very I know who famous that is. uh horror and science fiction writer, wrote a lot of Twilight Zone episodes and uh just an excellent writer, and um, it's it's a really romantic story, and um, I don't want to spoil anything about it, but it's it's really worth seeing. Well, I was saying, and Amber, you mentioned that the basis of a ghost story. A lot of times, it does circle around this idea of love, because I mean, I think we can all agree that this, you know, the the idea of love and this is an emotion. It's probably one of the stronger impulses we have. As, as far as the human experience is concerned, um, it's it's usually love or wrath. You know, somebody that yeah. wants vengeance or or somebody that you know has something to do. I mean, I'm telling you guys this. You have a show about ghosts, but um, <laughs> no, it's cool. I mean, it's, you know, it's it, it's yeah, it's always something very strong that that holds a person here instead of letting them move on. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and I I think that's There's, go ahead, Mark. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, no, I was just saying, I mean, I, that, that emotion, it, that's the basis of many, 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 many ghost stories. It's a strong emotion. It imprints itself. Yeah, it, it, one idea is that it imprints itself, and we've heard about the whole residual idea, or like you said, Mark, it's this idea that 
maybe that emotion is holding someone back from moving wherever it is they're supposed to go that we don't know about. Right. Um, But it does find itself weaving its way into a lot of these stories. You know, whether ones that are we would consider, I guess, nonfiction, so to say. I mean, I mean, I hate to call every ghost story fiction. I mean, yes, I know what we what you just read was a work of fiction. But um, a lot of these ones, these are ones that people say they've actually seen something. Uh, and it's based on a story right. like that. So right. it really is based on love. Love is a big part of this whole thing, I think. And when you think about that, that's, yeah, that's just that's just where it's at. Right, Amber? Yeah. Well, and there's also, like, when we were talking about, like, the two opposites, like, you know, love and then, like Mark said, wrath. Yeah, yeah. And then on this particular article that I had printed out, they had a list of um, – murders and horrible things that have happened around Valentine's Day, like, well, the Valentine's Day massacre yeah, of 1929, which really isn't anything about love. It just happened on Valentine's Day. Yeah. Uh, that was exactly. the, That's the gangster one, that's right? That's Al Capone, yeah. Okay. And that's then, Al Capone, yeah, yeah. Uh, going after the North Side Irish gang. Yep. And, and some it, of his compatriots killed them in a garage. Yeah. They, made, they dressed up as cops. I yep. told them to face the wall, and then they gunned them down. Yep. Uh, we've actually driven by that garage in Chicago. Mm-hmm. We've actually... I mean, it's not really a garage anymore. They've renovated it. On a ghost everything. tour. <laughs> uh, yeah, we did it on a ghost tour, actually. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But they, they, they took us to... They, they showed us, like, the gates of where the garage used to be. They're like, yeah, the garage used to be right here, and this is where where it was done at. Um, this yeah. is where the hot tub is now. For the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> For the time, that was one of the most... I mean, as far as, you know... Calling it a massacre was very accurate. It's one of the bloodiest uh, gang killings that ever happened at the time. It was, and it, I mean, they actually, the thing that was horrible about that one is that they actually, they, they got a lot of pictures of it. <laughs> I mean, reporters yeah, were able to get do. in there. And some of those pictures are, I mean, I've seen a lot of the pictures and they really are disturbing. I mean, what, I hate to say this, but what firepower can do to the human body, it's really really kind of numbing to think about that but yeah st valentine's day massacre amber uh, happened on valentine's yeah day. i don't and i should have looked up some of these other ones i don't know if other people listeners are familiar with some of these it's there's an unsolved murder of young lovers jesse mcbain and patricia mann and this occurred on valentine's day 1971 I, scott you're a true crime fan you that doesn't do those names sound familiar we'll say it again jesse mcbain and patricia mann I know. I should have looked that up. Uh, that was before I was born. Whatever. You still. We know. You know a ton of true crime about. You're just talking about the Valentine's Day massacre. It's because I'm a, 1929. Because I'm an organized. Way before you were born. <laughs> I was an organized crime nerd. Uh, and then uh, the Merc- uh, This one I do remember. The murder by Oscar uh, Pretorius and Riva Steenkamp on Valentine's Day 2013. That was that guy, that legless runner from. Oh South yeah, Africa. that guy went. Yeah, he lost his shit. And um. Yeah, and then this was sad. I think I remember hearing about this, the murder-suicide of an elderly couple in Alabama on Valentine's Day 2015. But whenever whenever something what? happens on, like, a holiday, like Valentine's Day, it just seems to cement it that much more into, like, horribleness. Well, I mean, it's it's yeah. something you can't avoid every year, and it's something you're going to remember every year, unfortunately. Just you can't escape that if it if especially if you're a loved one in that situation. I mean, every year you have to you have to relive that whole situation. It's just sucky. I, I hate hate that like um, John Lennon got shot on my birthday. <laughs> oh no! Yeah, so that always comes up. Yeah, and then Dimebag Daryl was the day before my birthday. Oh, from Panther. Yeah, December eighth, and oh, I'm okay. like, really, really. <laughs> Stop! <laughs> I don't. I better not become a musician. That won't be good for me. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, 
I'm not going to. Did you say, Mark? Did you have another story that you wanted to you wanted to give to us, or is it? Um, I had a couple time permitting. Um, you know, it, it depends on you yeah, guys well, if yeah, you want to hear anymore. Yeah, I'd oh, we'd love to hear. Oh. It. I'd love to hear more if you if you'd like to if you'd like to read it to us. Yeah, we'd love to hear it. Well, then here we go. This is called <laughs> a sweet girl for Todd. Here you go," she said, handing him a brochure for a tanning salon. It read Aztec Tan and featured a tan and muscular jaguar warrior surrounded by pretty girls in bikinis. Todd gulped. One of the beauties in the photo was standing before him. So, how about a tan, she asked. Todd was embarrassed by the attention, especially from a beauty with such large blue eyes. She wore a turquoise silk blouse, open just enough to tempt his gaze. He tried to concentrate on her blonde hair, which shimmered in the sun like spun gold. Like Sif, the wife of Thor, he marveled. Mama never let me go out in the sun, he said. His mother had always made dire predictions about what would happen if he ventured outside. So he'd grown up in a world of perpetual dimness. Then three months ago, she had been installing new blackout curtains and had fallen off a ladder, breaking her neck. After she was gone, Todd took his first tentative step outside. Once he discovered that he would not burst into flame or melt like a waxwork figure, he had reveled in the feel of sunshine and open air. No wonder you're so pale, she said, shaking her head sadly. Todd felt his heart break to see her unhappy, while at the same time his spirits soared because she really seemed to care for him. I also had bad skin, but I've been using Skin Alive and Chum Scrub. I think your skin is beautiful, she said shyly. My name is Mandy. I'm Todd. You have family here in L.A., Todd? I can tell you're from out of town by your accent. Chicago? Detroit, he said, happy she was interested. No, it was just Mama and me, and she's dead. I wanted to go to someplace sunny. So now you're here seeking your fortune, and maybe love? Todd blushed a bright crimson and felt it travel all the way from his cheeks to the tips of his toes. It was not an unpleasant situation, uh, sensation. Mandy took his arm, and her touch sent a shockwave of electricity through him. He willed himself not to sway, lest she break her grasp. So, Todd from Detroit, how about that tan? I'm uh, too big for a tanning bed, he said, as if imparting a secret. Not ours, she said sweetly. Todd hesitated. He was 6'2 and tipped the scales at just shy of 400 pounds. Todd had come to learn that what might serve most men was either too small or too fragile for him. He was sure it would be that way with her tanning bed and wasn't sure he could take the embarrassment. Tell you what, Mandy Cood, you try a tan and you can join me for dinner. You mean like a date? She giggled and it was not the cruel laughter he had heard as he had waddled down Hollywood Boulevard or the hateful snickers as he ate lunch at the House of Pies. No, her laughter was melodious and magical. Aphrodite might have made such a sound. Of course, silly, you think I'm going to let a handsome, robust man like you get away? Handsome. She found him handsome. Was love beckoning to him? His mother's voice unbidden reminded him that sunlight was bad for her little man and that he had a ticket back to Michigan. Todd banished her from his thoughts, a first on this day of many firsts. She led him down the boulevard, and again he was struck by the dizzying array of colors and textures of people from every country, some pierced and tattooed into tribal fetishes, or creatures Conan or John Carter of Mars might have fought. First trip to Hollywood, she asked. My first trip anywhere, he confessed. I, I thought it would be like Clark Gable days. 
She giggled again, the sweet notes making his heart flutter. He suddenly caught her scent, flowery and clean with a hint of something animal underneath, and felt a strange stirring along his spine and down into his pelvis. Maybe that's love, he thought. Mandy escorted him all the way down to a strip mall on Sunset near Vine. Even when his hand became sweaty from exertion, she didn't let go, and Todd was sure he had found the sweet girl he had been yearning for since he first read of Dejah Thoris, Princess of Mars. The shopping center seemed deserted, and weeds had started to sprout in the parking lot. In amongst several failed businesses sat a cheery little storefront with a mural of Mesoamerican, Meso, uh, Mesoamerican pyramid and a smiling sun with sunglasses. The sign read, Aztec San, the sun experts. Inside, it was cool and brightly lit, and posters of Mexico covered the walls. Todd was introduced to the staff, which included Lila, the massage therapist, and Derek, the tan master. This title was delivered by handsome Derek with self-deprecating smile. Todd envied Derek his heroic muscles and dark curly hair. He looked like Apollo. He might have been jealous, but Mandy introduced him as my Todd, and he again felt that pleasant heat suffuse his body. Then Todd filled out a medical history, no illness, no next of kin, and a release in the unlikely event, which Mandy assured him was just for those stuffy lawyers. She shyly gave Todd a kiss on the cheek that removed any fears he might have had. After much coaxing, Todd stripped down to his shorts. While he drank a soothing herbal tea, Lila covered him in spicy ointments and buttery creams. By the time she was done, he smelled like Christmas morning. They helped Todd into their largest tanning bed. Todd chose a recording of ambient forest sounds, and they all bid him sweet dreams. Nightbirds sang sweetly, but it was the crickets Todd found soothing and restful. He suddenly felt a longing for home and... and but the feeling was gone as quickly as it had come, and he thought of sweet Mandy and their date when he'd emerged bronzed like a jaguar warrior. As it grew toasty warm, Todd felt a strange, sharp pain in his gut and then along his spine. As he was about to panic, a warm calm settled over him, and he thought he remembered his father lifting him high, high up in arms long and strong. Todd drifted, out to, uh, drifted off to the sounds of a tropical rainstorm, thinking of his father, his dinner with Mandy, and custard pies, his favorite dessert. Something large and dark flew across his memory and then was gone. Soon Todd was asleep and they could all hear him snoring, a ratcheting worthy of a frontier logging camp. Derek locked the tanning bed securely and turned the temperature up to 350 degrees Fahrenheit. Mandy put out the clothes sign and locked the front door and then began setting the table in the employee lounge. Lila called the rest of the clan at various salons in the valley. They arrived quickly. Clients with, like Todd were all too rare, even in Los Angeles. Like Mandy, Lila, and Derek, they were all tanned and dark, with fine physiques and easy smiles. Contrary to popular legend, they weren't bald or scabrous or pale. They didn't lurk around cemeteries or avail themselves of raw flesh. Oh, they had certain cousins who practiced this some even sophisticated enough to act as though they, were, they had a refined palate like a Japanese noble dining on sushi. Disgusting. They played the old songs and games, and some moved off into other rooms for liaisons with cousins they had not seen in many months. Soon Todd's snores stopped, and a delicious aroma filled the salon. Everyone laughed when Mandy drooled on her new blouse 
and she was a subject of good-natured ribbing for much of the afternoon. Then came the ritual bearing of the teeth when they removed their carefully crafted bridge work to reveal strong white teeth filed to points. They played slash tag and blind, bite the blind man for another hour, then got down to serious drinking and carousing. Twelve hours later, with hula, hula music playing and all the guests happily drunk, Derek opened the tanning bed with a flourish. Everyone stared. Todd was gone. In his place was a six-foot lozenge of copper-colored chitin, rounded with hemispherical protrusions at one end, tapered and segmented at the other. It looked like some kind of sarcophagus. What the... Derek exclaimed, but then the pupa was splitting open, and new Todd emerged. Famished from his change, he devoured every screaming one of them, his stinger paralyzing them, then his razor-sharp forelegs and crushing mandibles, more than equal to the task of devouring flesh and bone. Todd saved pretty Mandy for last, her blue eyes wide with a terror that seemed to his new eyes like love. His venom turned her organs and bones into jellied confections, sweeter than anything he had ever tasted, even custard pie. Oh, I did not see it taking that turn. I'm okay. like, they're going to eat them. Oh, poor guy. Well, again. They're monsters, sharp little teeth. His, but... his mom was right, too. <laughs> yeah. That was the idea. His mom <laughs> yeah. was right. Yeah. Listen to your mother. <laughs> Listen to your mother. That was, I, 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 I don't want to say, I don't want to come across the wrong way. That was demented. <laughs> 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 I mean, I mean that. Oh, the, I, I mean that in the greatest way ever. I mean, because it was super cool. Um, wow. Well, it's okay. a dark Valentine there. Yep. Pat. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, and the, the thing about that, like, you know, just knowing. I mean, it's like in my mind, I'm like, okay, she's being too nice to him. Uh, a six foot two right. guy who's over four hundred pounds, which means he's a big boy. Some. I mean, I, mean right. I hate to sound so shallow, but it's like, okay, what's going on here? What's up? What's happening here? Um, so yeah, I mean that's just my my paranoia, I guess. But man, what neat story! <laughs> I was chuckling throughout because I was like Derek the Tan Master. <laughs> yeah, Derek the Tan Master. I'm just imagining what this guy looks like. It's making me laugh. <laughs> Derek, he looks like Apollo. He looks like Apollo. He looks like Apollo exactly. So wow, I, <laughs> Mark. I, all I can say is thank you. I mean, this has just been a, just going through all this stuff. I didn't think we we touch on so many. Crazy points when it comes to this the subject of, of Valentine's Day and things like that, and you know the emotions around that, and the stories that you you bring to us once in Christmas and now here on Valentine's Day, um, they're a real treat. That's all I can say about. Thank it, you. Mark. Thank you so much. I mean, I don't know what else to say. Amber, what 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 are your thoughts on? I'm this? gonna be reading his book tonight because I bought it today. Oh, did you? I did. Thank oh, you. Yes, I did. So, uh, well, I just I I want to say, you know, without sounding corny, um, I feel like you two are friends of mine now. You Yay! know, I know oh. we've never really met, oh, but no. um, you're so easy to talk to oh, and and you. so funny and informative. I, I've really enjoyed myself both times, well, and I just thank you for having me. You know, be a part of Ghostly Talk. We yeah. have to do this. Mark's going to be our yeah. official storyteller. Yeah, now. you're going to have to be our. St- <laughs> <laughs> No, thank you. Let's talk about the book for a few more minutes here, Amber. Tell us all about the book. 
What? The book. I bought it. I know, but just tell about the well, book. I don't Where have it? it in front of me. <laughs> Where it's the hell my, can you get it at? It's on my Kindle. Oh, my God. I, let, me go, let, me, let me look it up. I thought you had it in front of no. you. No. Where can we get the book at? Mark, where can we get the book at? You, it, you can get it on Amazon. Amazon. And it's on Kindle, like she says, or you can get a hardcover, or not a hardcover, but a paper and ink book. Okay. And, um, yeah, and it's called Dark Valentines, and it's got a skeletal, skeletal hand holding a little candy uh, heart. Yes. Which uh, so, my wife designed, I'll tell you. Oh, so. very cool. Very cool. Mark Onspa, thank you so much. I can't thank you enough. And, yeah, you know, you're a friend of ours, too. We feel the same way. I, it's, it's a riot talking to you. And, I mean, really, these stories that, that we get to hear from you, it really is a treat. I can't say that enough. And so the fact you. that you wrote, one, you know, like an wrote, original like, yeah, ghostly yeah, talk it, story. Well, yeah, I did mean, like, like ghostly talk. Well, premiere. It's, yeah, it's totally cool. I mean, I feel real honored it's that you so brought cool. that to us for the first time. Thank you. Well, thank you, and um, I look forward to talking to you guys again sometime. Yay! And happy Valentine's Day to you guys. Yeah. You know, yeah. Not a dark one, but a good one. <laughs> Ghostly talk! <laughs>